Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Justin, today is a very special episode of The Extra Environmentalist. Do you know why? A very special episode, but I have no idea why. Today is the 20th episode of The Extra Environmentalist, and that, my friend, is a large, large deal. That is a large deal. We were sitting around, well, more like chatting on Google Talk quite a while ago. I think it was maybe even a year and a half ago. And you were saying, Justin, why don't we take all the things that we talk about, talk about them with other people, and do a podcast on it? And I was like, no, I don't know if anyone would listen to that. I don't know if anyone would want to hear that. And I said, well, why don't we just try and see? And you said, oh, well, well, maybe we'll think about it. And we, we tried it, didn't we? We gave it a shot. And now here we are 20 episodes later and so many amazing listeners who shoot us emails and tell us awesome things and so many amazing guests that we've been fortunate enough to speak to. And even though I know I would do this anyways, Seth and I do this because we just have fun. It wouldn't be the same without so many listeners who constantly tell us how much they enjoy the show and who even send in fan art. Like, that's incredible. Yeah, man, the fan art we've been getting is just fantastic. I was listening to The Psychedelic Salon with Lorenzo Haggerty, and he mentioned on his show that any podcast that gets up to 20 episodes is a legit podcast. I mean, they've worked out some of their kinks and you fellow podcasters out there who have been holding back, you can now feel reassured that the Extra Environmentalist is here to stay and that we are not going anywhere because we have staying power. We have 20 episodes and now we are becoming a pillar of the podcasting community. In the Greek sense of holding up the roof of the world. Yes, we're raising the roof and the debt ceiling recently. Of the podcast world. Yes, we're raising the debt ceiling of the podcasting world. It is a very pivotal time in America where the economic debt crisis seems to be coming to a rather large and rather ugly head. Absolutely. This past week saw tremendous sell-offs in financial markets, extreme financial chaos in Europe, Italy, Spain are having tremendous problems. Madrid saw tons of protesters get in clashes with police. The protests in Spain are absolutely starting to heat up and amplify as opposed to simmering or settling down. So it's a crazy time in the world and the extra environmentalist is here to tell you that there's someone else out there who feels that craziness and we're here to talk to people who also recognize that craziness and aren't willing to shy away from it. We're willing to talk about the solutions in a very frank and realistic way. 
and that can be a positive thing. So much of the problem that we're seeing coming to a head across the world, as we just mentioned, has to do with the economy. And so we've been speaking with a lot of economists lately. Justin, who are we talking to today? Today, we're speaking with Manfred Max Neef. He's a Chilean economist and author. He's a recipient of the Right Livelihood Award. He's our second Right Livelihood Award interview that we've had. Our first one was with Helena Norberg-Hodge about the economics of happiness. And Manfred Max Neef has developed the theory of human scale development. And that's because when he went to school at UC Berkeley in, in the 50s and 60s, when he lived in the United States, and then he came back to Chile, he realized that the economics he'd learned about had nothing to do with the poverty that he'd witnessed. And he had to go in and really look at how the poor interact and live. And he realized that in a lot of ways, all the theories about why people were poor were wrong. Often in the United States, we look at uh, people who are homeless or people who are poor, and we say, you know, pull yourself up with your bootstrap, work harder. He realized that poor people are some of the hardest working people that there are. In the impoverished communities that he witnessed in Chile, he saw amazing innovation, the way that people can make do with things that they find on the street to get by with small problems. Whereas in the developed world, people with money can just go out and buy something to do that same function. But if you're poor, you don't have that option. You have to cobble things together and come up with stuff on the spot, improvise. That's very true. We also ask him some very interesting questions about the future of humanity. Definitely. We started speaking with him about his most recent book, Economics Unmasked, but we immediately dived into the topic of the United States. And even though we recorded this interview quite a while ago, before the recent debt ceiling debate got so heated, we talked quite a bit about the debt ceiling and U.S. debt and financial crisis, and also the way that South America and the rest of the world views the U.S. and its debt crisis, and some really fascinating viewpoints there. It's always good to talk to someone outside of your country or or your newsosphere, you could call it, and get another view because in other countries, they view your situation completely differently. They're not as close to it as we are. They don't get bombarded with it every single day. They kind of see it and it's part of their lives because it's in the news. They don't have to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. Gives you perspective, which is nice. Definitely. They can step out of that day-to-day existence. And that's what the Extra Environmentalist podcast is all about, is taking a step outside of that reality tunnel, taking a step outside of that typical viewpoint, and really looking in on the human system as it is and not as we might think it is just because we're kind of stuck inside it for most of the time. What do you think aliens would think of our current economic crisis right now? They'd be like, stupid humans, why don't you just eat each other? And we'd be like, no, that's gross. And they're like, why are you just trading all these pieces of paper around? Why do you not just go to the stars? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Definitely. Or they could be more like Cthulhu and the HP Lovecraft mythos, and they might just come down in giant blobs and then, like, transform our minds. Yes. One day, we'll have blobs transforming our minds. But until then, we'll be talking with Manfred Maxneef, and you'll be listening to the 20th episode of The Action Environmentalist. Dr. Manfred Maxneef, you're an economist, recipient of the Right Livelihood Award, as well as the Kenneth Boulding Award from the International Society for Ecological Economics. You're a member of the World Future Council, the Club of Rome, and founder for the Center for Development Alternatives and author of several books on economics. And today we're here to talk about your most recent book, Economics Unmasked, From Power and Greed to Compassion and the Common Good. 
So what originally inspired you to study economics and how did you become an economist? Actually, I am an economist and a musician. And my father was a German economist and my mother was a German pianist. So I did both things. So the influence in, in economics was of my father, who created the School of Economics of the University of Chile in those, uh, those days. And I studied that. So you play piano since a very young yes. age? Yes, and I'm a composer. Do you play any, and a composer as well? Wow. Do you play any other yes. instruments? No, piano. Great. So you had a decision at one point in your life to either study economics or become a professional musician, or have you been able to balance both? Yes, I was confronted with that decision. And well, as it normally happens, my parents were, of course, very happy. I wanted to be a musician exclusively. But the advice is, well, you never know whether you're going to be able to live from music. So why don't you finish your career and then you do what you want to do? And that's what I did. So I did both things in my life. But funny thing is that I became well known for what I liked the least. <laughs> so economics was not your first choice then. It was kind of like a secondary choice. Yes, but it right. became the, 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 the number one in my life after all. It's tough when you have to give up your first passion to, to go study something else. Excellent. And so one of the interesting things about Economics Unmasked is that you wrote it uh, along with the physicist Philip Smith. And there are many examples of engineers and natural scientists that started to learn economics and then recognize the fallacies and issues with it far faster than a lot of economists did. For example, I saw Dr. Pachari, he's the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, speak recently here in Vancouver. And he was an engineer who started learning about economics and he immediately started to see a lot of flaws with the way it's taught. And so why is it that you think that experts in the natural sciences maybe can understand economics? better than many economists sometimes. Because they are involved with the real world. And the world of economists is an imaginary world, you know, constructed uh, starting from assumptions which don't fit with reality. The fact that economists believe that what determines human behavior is utility and believe in the market, the most way of distributing resources, etc., etc. It's a lot of assumptions, you know, which don't correspond to the real world. And the proof of that is that how many economists really saw what was coming in October 2008? Very, very few. And that's just because they are not connected to the real world. While physicists and engineers are, they are touching and they're living the real world. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about being able to touch and being in touch with the world. In your first part of your book, you focus on why we went down a particular path in history with the history of economics. What was it about that some of the early economic writers that grasped the collective imagination? Why are these values so heavily emphasized in our universities, do you think? The whole history, as we show it in the book of economics, in every period, you had economists and others had different views. Some were much more concerned with what we can call, I mean, human well-being. And the others much more with simply mechanical growth. And some were concerned, you know, with social justice and others simply with the growth of the economy. And the dramatic thing is that in every case, the one that became victorious was the one that favored uh, power and, and wealth. And the others disappeared. And this has been systematic, you know, since Adam Smith up to this day. This century, you find that several economists, you know, who were much more concerned with quality of life Life and with social justice. Keynes is one example, of course. But in the end, you know, those who dominate the scene are those favoring wealth and power. 
Today, especially the university you know, is at the service of the market. We no longer have the university as it was originally conceived, as center of deep reflection and critical thinking. You know? But now it's much more concerned you know, with doing what the market tells. And the market is, of course, controlled by power and wealth. And that's where the money comes for the, for the most important universities. And that's why they are the defendants of... Uh, a model you know, that has unfortunately nothing to do with reality. As I see it, the university concretely is one of the main responsible institutions for what is happening in the world today. Because the way we are educating economists at this stage of history is absolutely criminal. We are educating people who will never understand the real world. And that continues. And there are very few universities that are really undergoing serious change. But there are very, very few. So I think there's a fundamental question that arises, and that is, why is there a separation between what economic systems preach and the welfare of humanity on the ground? Is it money and greed that drives this whole system and promotes this inequality that we see throughout the world? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. And I think we demonstrate that in the book, that greed is a fundamental component of the final result we have of the social structure today. Greed is today the dominant value underlying the economic model that we have all over the world. And the proof of that, that this model, the neoliberal model, would collapse if there were no poverty. Poverty is absolutely a necessity for this model, for, for the reproduction of this model. And that, of course, one says everything. One of the points you address in the book is that poverty is, in many ways, built into the system of neoliberal economics. And one question that we had was, does that poverty have to exist because there's limited resources? Or does it exist because the world's governments have chosen to use the system of economics that promotes poverty? Poverty is good business for this model. This model would not exist if there were no poverty. I mean, if you have a, a corporation like Nike or Nike, whatever, if it remains in the United States, it cannot be competitive anymore. So it moves to Indonesia, where little girls between 12 and 15 years in horrible conditions make the shoes at a cost of $6, and they continue selling them at $130. Now, what would this condition be for that corporation if you didn't have those poor girls there in Indonesia? So you see that poverty is a necessity for the model. The model cannot reproduce itself, I mean, if there is no poverty. And that is the sinister part, and this dominates the whole world today. And it is one of the reasons why you, you see the uprising of civil society in more and more and more places in the world. People are getting really mad. They don't want anymore. I mean, many have the things clear, others have it less clear, but there is a gigantic injustice dominating the world today. And that injustice comes from the economic model. Yes, that's true. We, we've seen the uprisings where people have rebelled against that status quo. Do you feel that there is an alternative to having an underclass or does the whole system just fall apart? if that is taken out of the equation. I think the system is going to fall apart. It is already falling apart. I mean, the case of the United States, I call it in the book, an underdeveloping nation. I mean, the situation in the United States is absolutely unbelievably disastrous. If you think of a country, you know, that has reached a point in which practically, very soon, it will no longer be able to pay the interests of its debts, the highest debt ever in human history. 
of one country more than the, all the debts of all other countries added together. That is, that is absolutely crazy. This news that appeared yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, I was really moved. This man in the United States, jobless, who faulted a bank just for one dollar because he wanted to be taken into prison because he couldn't pay for his health. Right. Yeah, I saw that. Well, I mean, what does that say? I mean, and that is supposedly in the most powerful country in the world, no? that people must do things like that in order to survive. It's, it's absolutely catastrophic, you know, I mean, this model. So what are the differences between the economy of the United States and the economy of a developing nation at this point? Well, uh, <laughs> the difference is that, uh, as I said, the United States is doing everything possible to be as underdeveloped as possible. While many developing countries, and particularly in Africa, you know, there are some countries that are doing very creative things and trying to get rid of the dominant impositions of the model. There are developing countries that are doing interesting things, still not enough because they don't have the power. They still depend a hell of a lot, you know, on the Bretton Woods institutions now that control the whole processes. But I would say that there is more awareness in many developing countries than there is in countries like in the United States in relation to, to the urgent necessity of conceiving a completely different model. Do you think that's because the media in the United States doesn't talk about these other models? Yes, of course. I mean, I mean, media doesn't inform about these things. That's very clear. Media is also controlled. I mean, the main media is obviously controlled by great interest groups. Once in a while, here and there appears something in the media, but it's certainly not enough for people to be fully aware of what is actually happening. I mean, the incredible thing is that if you are outside the United States, you know more about the States than if you are inside. Now, I have my brother who lives there, and we have many conversations very often, and, and I inform him about things that he had no idea that are happening in the United States. It's quite incredible. What type of things have you found out? Well, all sorts of things. It's, it's not a matter of giving a list of cases, but a number of informations about the debt in the United States and what has been the reactions you now of the people, but does not appear in the papers. What paper in the United States is telling you now that the, the situation of the debt in the United States now? No. Trillions of dollars of debt, which are absolutely unpayable. The only reason that the United States is still doing what it does is because the whole rest of the world is terrified that the U.S. may collapse. And the reason is that the dollar is still the world currency. So the collapse of the United States is the collapse of most of the world in that respect. So everybody is doing everything possible now that the state survives this process. But how much longer? I mean, that's the question. As far as I see it, there is very difficult that there is a way out for the United States. The United States is bankrupt, absolutely and completely bankrupt. And that is not being informed to the people. And we see that in the United States as the Senate and the House the, continues to debate about the debt ceiling that keeps coming up. We're very, very close to bumping into that spending right. limit. What happens when this debt ceiling comes and we push it further down the road? And at some point, does it become unmanageable and our debts just can't be paid anymore? Right now, you cannot pay it anymore. I mean, just the interests are so enormous. There is no way, you know, of paying the capital. And... What is uh, the answer to that? Well, let's uh, amplify the ceiling you know, so that we can uh, indebt ourselves even more. That's the solution that is being proposed right now. More indebtedness. Knowing that that you have now is already unpayable. Probably behind uh, their brains, you know, they hope that in another 10 years some miracle may happen and you may get out of it. But the situation is absolutely impossible to maintain. It's totally artificial. And the only thing, you know, that the United States is doing 
and it can do it because it is the world currency, is print and print and print and print and print more dollars. And that is having impacts all over the world. The problem, you know, of the rising prices of food, to a great degree, is, is, is provoked by the United States. And the consequences are being paid by the, by the poorer people in the world, you know, that have to pay more and more for the rice and for wheat and whatever. The United States model of lifestyle is one that seems to be attractive to people around the world. It's emulated and a lot of times strove for in a lot of places in the world. How does that contradict the unsustainable nature of the United States lifestyle? How, how come people don't pick up on the unsustainability of it and continue to promote it and strive for it around the world? We see it in many cases in, in culture and and, well, um, I mean, that's the, that's the TV, what you see in the TV, and then, and then it looks nice. And then you're convinced that happiness has to do with consumption. The more you consume, the happier you're going to be. But more and more and more and more people are clear that that's not the case. And the, all these, these movements in the, we were referring to before, you know, the uprisings of the civil societies here and there, they have it very clear that lifestyle is no longer attractive. It's untenable, it's unsustainable, and, and more and more people are becoming perfectly aware of it. I would say a few years earlier, I had much greater influence the American way of life. But it's becoming less and less popular in many places. Even the, the image of McDonald's and things like that, you know, is on the decline. It was a moment and it was, it was the thing, but no more. Things are beginning to change, and those changes are coming from the civil society in a process that has no concrete leaderships, it's not organized, it's chaotic, and that is where the strengths of the movements are precisely. Nobody is controlling it, but it is reflecting now a feeling of the people you know, that is becoming stronger and stronger and are going to produce, I believe, important changes. It's not predictable exactly what is going to happen, but things are going to change. So what does it look like when a country can't pay its debts? Uh, what does it mean for people in their daily life? Is the U.S. situation similar to when Argentina defaulted, or is it different? No, it's much worse, because the impact of the United States is a hundred times the impact Argentina can have in the world. You know? I mean, you, you are seeing it. I mean, the real unemployment you have in the United States today. What's the real, uh, the real numbers, the real figures, not the official ones, you know, of the people that have lost their homes now, that are living in the street, that cannot pay for their health care, etc., etc. I mean, it, it's absolutely colossal. It's colossal. I mean, it has nothing to do with the image one would have of the most powerful nation in the world. That, that, that power, you know, probably was when people still believe in it, but uh, the reality is totally different. In Argentina, of course, it was tremendously dramatic, a country that could have fed, you know, one third of the entire humanity, that all of a sudden you have children who are dying of hunger in a country as rich as Argentina. Well, it's beginning to happen in the United States as well. Only that the impact is, of course, 10 times or 100 times bigger, you know, than the impact Argentina or any other country in the world could have. What do you think uh, would happen to the people in the, in the U.S. if they knew how bad the situation really was, if they were getting this view that everyone else in the world is seeing. The same that's happening in Spain, the same that is happening in Greece, the same that is happening in the Arab countries, the same that is already happening in several states of you in Wisconsin and other places. I mean, people are showing that they are fed up, aren't they? So I think, I really think, and I have said this also in a, in a previous interview, 
that any minute, you know, you may have a tremendous outburst of people protesting uh, in the United States in the streets, eventually destroying things, I don't know. But I think the, the situation is very mature. That may happen any moment. You're sitting on a, on a piece of dynamite. I'm just behind the police lines here in Tottenham in northeast London. Uh, the police are coming under attack from fireworks. Uh, they've just warned us that petrol bombs are being assembled. So just about an hour ago, uh, we were in what we thought was a safe position. There were crowds milling around us, seemed friendly. Most of them seemed to be just onlookers. And then suddenly the mood turned. The police car was attacked. Uh, masked youth suddenly appeared almost from nowhere, uh, attacked it with missiles and bricks, and they set it the alight. Police in Spain have clashed with so-called indignados demonstrators protesting over the closure of Madrid's main square. Several people were injured. The unrest has been going on since Tuesday when police moved in to clear the remains of the Indignados camp set up against the government response to the country's economic crisis from the Puerta del Sol Square. Normally bustling with tourists this time of year, it's been empty since with shops and restaurants shutting down too. London is ablaze again after all the troubles of the weekend. Groups of youths are clashing with police in several parts of the city tonight and more buildings are on fire. Widespread looting, rioting and violence in both North and South London. Pictures showed a building that's been set on fire on the main high street there. So Seth, what do you think about civil unrest? Do you think it's likely in the US? Do you see the people that you drive next to and work with on a daily basis rising up against the state? I would like to say that I don't see that, Justin. I would like to think that the people that I, I work with and people that I drive to work with and the people that go to the same supermarket as me would not be the ones that are out in the street rioting and smashing windows and turning over cars. But as we've seen in, in places such as Vancouver where you live, it doesn't take much to get people going. It doesn't take much to set people's sparks flying and to, to make that jump from average little citizen driving to work in his Ford Fiesta to crazy raging man with a baseball bat smashing windows. It doesn't take that much. And we've seen that all over the world. People upset when you can't eat and when you can't put food on your table and you don't have power and you don't have any kind of resources. You need to get them from somewhere and it sometimes takes the form of civil unrest and it makes people very upset. Stephen, it's just been absolute chaos here in the last 10 to 15 minutes. The army did move in, as you said, into Tahrir Square where now what happened was that tanks as well as army soldiers and riot, uh, police wearing riot gear moved into the square. They started clearing the people. They, they started clashing with people who were, were actually throwing rocks at them. They picked those rocks up. They were throwing it back at them. And what the army has done is pushed all the people out of the square and then now they're chasing them through the streets in Cairo. Brutal day on Wall Street. You see the number right there as we approach the closing bell. The Dow down more than 600 points, more than 5%. And there's very few places to run right now for people who want to stay in the stock market. I know we're going through a tough time right now. We've been going through a tough time for the last two and a half years. I know a lot of people are worried about the future, but here's what I also know. There will always be economic factors that we can't control. Earthquakes, spikes in oil prices, slowdowns in other parts of the world. Markets will rise and fall, but this is the United States of America. No matter what some agency may say, we've always been and always will be a triple-A country. 
I always wonder what I would do if I didn't have any food and I didn't have any money and my situation had been dire for years. Would I rise up and riot? Probably so. I can't slight the people in Syria and Egypt for wanting something more, for rising up. But I also worry that revolutions often end up with very dire circumstances afterwards. And you can see in Egypt now, their economy's tanking. Tourism, which was a big part, has gone away. And the people who rose up in Egypt aren't necessarily in a better place. But do you risk going to a worse place after a revolution when you're headed for a bad place anyways? Well, what you do is you just you risk rearranging the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. You know, you just you, put, you trade one tyrannical leader for another. You take one dictator and you put another one in there. What, what we need to happen is you need to have some civil unrest that leads to a larger understanding of the root causes of that civil unrest. You need to have some kind of larger takeaway message that helps people to understand that putting somebody in power that has their rights and their ideas at heart and not keeping power just for themselves. I mean, this sounds very idealistic, but that, that's something along those lines needs to happen. It, maybe it's an evolution of human consciousness. Maybe it's an evolution of, of expectations for what it means to be a nation state. Maybe it means the dissolution of nation states altogether. I don't know. But something needs to change so that violent revolution does not lead to the repetitive totalitarianistic governments that just seem to replace themselves over and over and over again. And I just saw that the U.S. got downgraded. Just happened. Really? Yeah. You live in the U.S. double A. Oh, man. Justin? We just lived a historic moment. The sole superpower in the world is no longer AAA. Well, that's one of the reasons we do this podcast is to talk to people and discuss some methods for moving forward because if civil unrest breaks out and it ends up being destructive rather than constructive, as is quite possible, then we're just going to find ourselves in a much worse situation with everything broken around us and with nothing operating. So we have to have systems to fall back on and we have to have a vision for whatever anger we want to channel. Wisconsin State Fair. Several people hurt, cars damaged after what police and witnesses describe as a mob-type attack. Large, unruly crowds of teenagers picked fight after fight with innocent people. At least a hundred teenagers blocked traffic. They were pounding on car windows, knocked people off their motorcycles. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Dr. Manfred Max Neve. So do you think that in these Middle Eastern countries where these revolts and uprisings have taken place, these are, are not first world countries? And the people there are not, I mean, as educated, say, on a median as, say, like a, a Greece or a United States, for example. Does education play a role in how the reshaping of government will play out? Does that change how the revolts reshape government? Does education of the public change how these reshapings of government will happen? Of course, education is important, but that's not enough. It doesn't mean that more higher educated people you know, will do the, necessarily the change. There are many people, you know, who are upset who are not of higher education. No, I don't know. In the movements we have in Spain and in, in, in Greece and in, in the Arab countries, we, we have no information, you know, in, in those masses, what percentage has of higher education, of middle education or of little education. We, we don't know it. These movements cover the whole spectrum. No, I don't think that this is 
case in which more educated people will have more influence. It is like in many old uh, in history revolutions who were the people, probably the leaders, yes. But these are movements that have no concrete leaders. And that is the new thing. It's similar in a way, you know, to what happened in the 60s. There were also no leaders, you know, that it was a movement of a whole generation of young people. No, it's something similar, you know, not the same, but similar what is happening now. So in that concrete case, I don't know to what degree higher education has a greater impact or not. I don't know. I couldn't say it. But in any case, if you want to change things, of course, I mean, education helps in order to construct an alternative. That's fundamental, yes. So what you're saying is essentially all of our previous systems of education and political power and the way it's distributed are really running out of time, that it's it's really only a matter of time before the United States erupts in some kind of civil unrest, and we're already seeing the first stages of that happening? I believe so, yes. Unfortunately, I do. I hope it doesn't happen, you know, but the conditions are all on the table. You have all the conditions, you know, for, for an uprising of the people. I, I lived in the United States. I lived there in one of the two last beautiful decades. The beautiful decades in the United States were the 50s and the 60s. Great concern with social justice, you know, and uh, unions were strong, you know, and labor was important, and universities were extraordinary centers, you know, of discussion and reflection, etc., etc., etc. I was in Berkeley, you know, in the, in the 60s, and that was decisive for the rest of my life. But that United States does not exist anymore. That's finished. It's dead. And something very sinister, you know, has, has turned out after that, which has, where, where social justice and all the rest, you know, that were important in those two decades have disappeared. So you have all the conditions for an uprising, you know, that may occur. The conditions are there. Whether it occurs or not, well, I cannot predict that. I don't have a crystal ball. But the conditions are already sufficiently there. And I don't see what politics is doing about that. It's not uh, what is being discussed, you know, in the media. It's not what is being discussed in the Congress. You're concerned with other things. Your Tea Party and all of those nonsenses, you see, seem to be much more important, you know, at the level of politicians. These fundamental, dramatic conditions, you know, in which the United States is today, which has nothing to do with the United States we knew once upon a time, which was really a fantastic country. If civil unrest starts to break out in the United States and it happens in this decentralized manner like like you were speaking about, which seems to be a possibility, what do you see happening next? Do these groups just cause anarchy or are they actually able to transform to a new economic system or can the United States government actually manage continuing to pay its uh, interest and its debts if there's some kind of mass unrest? Here again, you know, the important uh, contribution of the university. The universities should be ahead designing the alternative for this existing model. The alternatives exist, and they are very strong, you know, but uh, the official economics departments in the universities still don't teach them. The whole field of ecological economics is tremendously strong, with very concrete proposals. And in my book, there's at the end, you know, a whole proposal of what an alternative could be, based on five postulates and a fundamental value principle, which you know, it's in the book. That is known. I mean, and all studies have been made. There are many publications in scientific journals and now that show that these are strong alternatives and strong proposals and strong possibilities. But the, the departments in the universities, you know, have still they, they, they close the doors. So there are 
many people in those apart departments that are working in an alternative, but outside the university. It's almost as if you were in an underground uh, movement, you see. But uh, the alternatives are there. And the role of the university for me is decisive. As it is today, the university is an accomplice of a world we don't want and we don't like. And that is damn serious. I am in the university. I was rector of, of my university for eight years. And even in my university, we have the same type of problem. Many of us are fighting very strong. And slowly, some changes are beginning. I mean, the whole process of post-autistic economics that started in France about 10 years ago, it's also something that is growing. It's publication of real-life economics, and now it's, it's excellent, with very important contributions. So all the possibilities for a change are there, and are strong and serious. And the question is that universities open themselves up and start doing their job. So say an, an individual citizen in the United States or in Canada is listening to this show and is listening to what you have to say, and they're feeling very afraid right now because they're living in a country that's, that's on the decline. What is there to do for individual citizens to mitigate some of this d destruction that's going to be coming? What is individual citizen, what kind of role does that person play in this situation? Look, as an individual, you have to do what you have to do, period. And that may have an impact on other people. There is, there is no uh, question now of a recipe, do number one this, number two this, number three this. I mean, the fundamental thing is to be coherent with yourself. And many times, you know, I tell my students, very often in your life, you know, you will receive advices and people will tell you, look, don't do this because this is not good for you. Do this other thing because this is good for you. Etc. And they do that very lovingly. The point for me is not if you do always what is best for you, it's a miserable life. You don't have to do what is best for you. You have to do what you have to do, whether it's better for you or not. And in the end, you know, the feeling, you know, when you get older will be very favorable. And that is what people need today. Individually be coherent with themselves. If you don't like something, well, don't do it. Don't promote it. Say something about it. Try to convince somebody else. There are no, no fixed recipes. It's just a matter of personal coherence. And I think to a great degree, this is already beginning to happen in these movements that we have been talking about. It's an addition of individuals feel that, well, I want uh, to be different. It's confusing, but that's the way it is. And these situations have never been absolutely clear. So people in the U.S. often have a very individualized view of survival and what it takes to survive. And some people who perhaps see the problems ahead for the United States are hoarding gold or buying firearms or thinking that having a, a cabin out in the woods will be able to save them. Do you, do you think that's a realistic strategy or do you think that hoarding uh, resources just makes them a target for potential crimes? These movements, I mean, and to change must be peaceful you now and must be the result of deep reflection and self-criticism particularly self-criticism. What have we made, done wrong? How can we change this? How can we improve this? Nothing can be solved with guns, with violence of any type. That only makes things much, much worse. Now, the problem is, of course, that you can have a, a society reach a point in which there are so many people so desperate that they can have absolutely violent actions. Uh, and that something that should uh, you should try to avoid it. I, I believe, you know, that uh, those dangers exist, and they exist in the States as, as they exist in other places as well. But I insist that if it happens in the States, it's the impact is much stronger than if it happens anywhere else. You've heard them. 
politicians, economists, executives, all saying the same thing. The economy is recovering. Recovering to what? It started a couple of centuries ago. There had been economic expansion before, but it was slow and cyclical. Empires rose and fell. But with the Industrial Revolution, rapid growth became normal. Economists tell us this was because of innovation, division of labor, increased trade. But it was mostly a result of cheap energy. It takes energy to do things, and with cheap coal and oil, people could suddenly do more than ever. First coal and then oil sped up trade by fueling our prized inventions. Railroads, automobiles, and airplanes. Economists assumed that growth could go on forever. It was an absurd notion. Nobody stopped to think that all this industrial growth was happening on a small planet with only so much oil and soil, only so many forests and fish. We were growing on borrowed time, but we all got hooked on growth. Rising GDP numbers became our main measure of success. The first warning sign came in the 1970s. A team of scientists programmed a computer with data about population growth, rising consumption, and resource depletion. Their conclusion, there are limits to growth. Mainstream economists attacked those findings using nasty rhetorical tricks, but 40 years later, the same conclusion holds. In fact, the industrial economies of the world's wealthy nations started stagnating years ago as resources began to run out. Governments, businesses, and households wanted to hock up to their eyeballs, gorging on easy credit. The financial system created ever more complex securities and derivative schemes to soak up all that debt and make perpetually rising imaginary profits on imaginary assets. But money and debt depend on natural resources. Piling up debt year after year, doubling it and doubling it again, meant piling up claims on resources that were shrinking as we depleted them. It was a pyramid scheme, the mother of all bubbles. And in 2008, it burst. Governments and central banks tried to re-inflate the bubble with bailouts and stimulus packages funded by public debt. But there are practical limits to debt, and we're hitting them. There are practical limits to energy sources, and we're hitting them. There are real limits to the planet's ability to absorb our wastes and industrial accidents. And we've hit those too. We're being told that the economy is recovering. But take away new debt the government has taken on since 2008 to stimulate the economy, and there's been no real economic growth. There is no recovery. It's all been done with more debt. We've already mortgaged our grandchildren's future, but to keep the economy from relapsing, we'll need to borrow even more. The game is up. We've reached the end of economic growth as we've known it. They're lying to you, but they can't help it. We're all addicted to growth. We all want better jobs and higher returns on investments, but we live on a finite planet. The end of growth is not the fault of any one politician or political party, but some people benefited from growth more than others. We can live without economic growth, but we'll have to start doing a few things differently. We have to measure and aim for improvements in life that don't require increasing our consumption of fossil fuels and other depleting resources, or piling on more debt. 
freedom, being with the people we love, good health and the time to enjoy it, a secure, happy community. We have to work together to build local economies where we can live and prosper. But, and this is a big but, without cheap fossil fuels and without borrowing from the future. The longer we put this off, the harder it will be. Economic growth, it's over. Let's move on. Today, we're speaking with Manfred Max Neef, author of Economics Unmasked, and you're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. You mentioned in the book some alternatives to economic development, the way it's it's typically carried out, such as uh, eco-municipalities. Could, could you speak a little bit about eco-municipalities? The product of the Natural Step Initiative, which was generated about 15 or 18 years ago as a consequence of a consensus between scientists, entrepreneurs, and politicians about what were the dangers in Scandinavia and what had to be changed concretely in Scandinavia, in, 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 in a very ample sense, not economically, but also environmentally and culturally and so on. And, uh, well, it was a very successful uh, initiative that reached even every single household in Sweden with the help of the government and the mailing system now, with proposals in every household, what should you do in your household to improve these conditions and these other conditions and this and that and so on and so forth. And it was tremendously successful. And the next step was then uh, the eco-municipalities, which implies that all the municipalities today, about two-thirds of municipalities in Sweden are eco-municipalities, meaning that all they do is to promote development that has to do with the welfare of the people. It's not just economic growth. Everything is done in terms of welfare, quality of life, and it is fundamentally based on the principles of human scale development, which uh, is the theory I developed with my colleagues about uh, 25 years ago, to which we refer also in uh, in the book. And this means uh, greater autonomy in in energy, uh, in economy, uh, bringing production closer to consumption, transportation, uh, and and everything, you know, non-aggressive to the environment. And this has been growing tremendously, and now it's in a number of other countries, you know, where eco-municipalities are being organized. A lot is being done in, in Japan, and probably the continent where you have more cases and successful interesting cases is in Africa. In Kenya, in Nigeria, and so on, I mean, they are very interesting and, and successful experiences in, in uh, eco-municipalities. This means greater uh, autonomy, you know, at the municipal level, because in many countries, you know, municipalities and the regions are totally dependent on the center, you know, on the capital or whatever. Here there is much greater autonomy in every respect and much more uh, participation, direct participation of the people. So it's something that comes closer to a more direct democracy, which is fundamental, you know, in, in this type of change. How do you think we could apply human scale development here in the United States? Well, it is being applied in several places. If you go, I mean, to the, I, I cannot tell you now, off the head, but there are many places. If, if you go into the natural step pages, you can see the many cases in the United States already that uh, are being uh, promoted, you know, and are doing uh, very well. I can't give you a list now. Many, many uh, cases in the United States already, and they're doing very well. What one must understand that all these alternatives, I mean, human scale development, eco-municipalities and so on, and, and the natural step 
are micro, not macro. They occur at the local level. So you add one local experience to another local experience and to another local experience, and that's how you get to the macro. But it's not something that is done from the top down. It's from the bottom up with the participation of the people. And that's why we call it human scale, because if it's gigantic, you know, it gets dehumanized. Human scale occurs only where you still are a person, are recognizable as a person and not just as a, as a statistical information. So if you understand it as many local initiatives, I mean reinforcing the local economy and the regional economy, this micro level, you know, these experiences are all about. And that generates a much greater democracy. So up to now, we've been concentrating on the United States a lot. How is Chile and South America dealing with global economic decline? And then how are you personally dealing with this inevitability? Well, I am dealing uh, as my book, fighting, you know, what I think and trying to do everything in order to change it. And that there's more and more discussion and and more reflection and uh, whatever. Now, Chile is in conventional economic terms pretty well. But if you look deeper into it, we have tremendous problems. It's one of the countries that has the worst income distribution in the world, although it looks very nice, no? but still uh, an enormous inequity in, in Chile. And Chile is 100% up to this day completely neoliberal. So quality of life, you know, is a totally secondary component. There is the obsession, like in many other places, with economic growth. Everything is solved with economic growth. More growth, more growth, more growth. The point is that now that instead of more growth, what we need is more equity. And growth does not bring that about. That is a different road that has to be taken. The rest of the Latin American countries, well, have lots of problems, tremendous problems still. But much of those problems are, again, the consequence, you know, of having followed the Washington consensus and the recipes of the Bretton Woods institutions that have been absolutely disastrous in uh, all over the world. And although they still don't want to recognize it, the results in many countries have been criminal. That's why I, one of the things I'm trying to promote with other colleagues and probably this year or by the end of the year or the next year, we may produce a manifesto proposing that we should create an international court of economic crimes and humanity. Because this economy has been so criminal, it has killed more people than the armies. And that is, again, something that is not in the news and not in the papers and not in the information. So we be, I believe that an international court for economic crimes against humanity could be something quite extraordinary. Do you think sometimes we overlook economic crimes and, and we think about in the past cultures and, and civilizations as being brutal and, and harsh? For example, you know, you can think of the Aztecs and how they had horrible human sacrifices, but are in many ways the economic troubles that we inflict on other nations to sacrifice for the economic good comparable? Or, or am I taking that example too far? Do you think we overlook the economic inequalities and we uh, overlook the economic atrocities that are per- perpetrated on the earth? Well, you, you either overlook them or you hide them. Let me ask you a question. Sure. After all the, the horrible things that have done, you know, in the crisis in the United States with all these speculators, who is in jail? Give me one name. Only one of all the people that committed the worst crimes that you can imagine. Plato's, you know, destroyed the lives of thousands and millions of people. Who is in jail? 
nobody and nobody will ever be in jail on the contrary they have more money than they had before and this is absolutely repugnant i don't, I, I really don't understand you know how there's still not a much stronger reaction in your country you know? how can you accept a thing like that it, it is absolutely unbelievable it is impossible to understand i mean those people are criminals criminals of the worst kind they have affected millions of people who have lost their homes you know their education their health you know and many of their lives, and nothing happens. On the contrary, they get more money, you know. And then, I mean, they get a, a fat bonus. Still, those speculators are still getting fat bonuses, you know, which they take home, 20 million, 30 million, 40 million. I mean, you are a nice guy, bye-bye. I mean, what the hell is that? I mean, this is a sick world. I mean, this is pathological. No reasonable mind can understand a thing like that. I mean, it's a case of colossal cynicism to act as if, as if actually nothing happened. Would you compare it to a genocide, some sort of genocide that you would see in another nation? Well, yes, certainly. The millions of people that have been dramatically affected, you know, by these speculators, go and ask them how they feel. Why are they not in the papers? Why are they not in the news? This man we were talking about, you know, that uh, went to the bank, you know, to steal one dollar. He's in the news because it was such an original thing he did. But how many millions do you have just this very minute in the same conditions as that, as that guy? And there are no news. They don't appear. So it's not a matter of overlooking. I mean, he, here you have again the power, power groups that control everything and distort reality and try to convince you, you know, that they are going to solve the problems you know, which they themselves created. The only access people have, you know, is through internet and so on. But Officially, I mean, they, they have no voice anymore. Do you think it's because, as you wrote about in your book, that economics has been used to rationalize and give a structure to power and money and greed? And do you, do you think that people are so used to playing by those rules and so used to being educated about that game that they just don't rebel and they don't fight back because they don't question the economic system? Yes. I mean, I think they were... How do you say when brainwashed? You're... Well, yes, they have been brainwashed. Yes, definitely, absolutely, and that from childhood on, you know, and, and it has been a very successful brainwashing of which people are beginning now to wake up, but they still don't have everything sufficiently clear. But it's slowly beginning to happen. I think that we are facing a period, you know, in which many absolutely unpredictable but big things are going to happen. It's difficult to say exactly this, this and that, but that big things are going to happen, I have no doubt whatsoever. And it may be very messy because not everything is clear except that I don't want this anymore. Well, what do you want instead? I don't know, but I don't want this anymore. That's a sort of more and more generalized feeling, and that can be messy, but, well, it's the way it's most probably going to happen. Do you feel that this period in human history is different than other periods of similar economic or social upheaval in human history? Is this is this particular time in human history different because of technology yes. or because of increased communication? No, I think it's different. First, because anything today is really global, which was not the case before. You had a French Revolution, you know, well, which had impact yeah, fundamentally in, in France and indirectly sort of in, in the rest of the world. World. But now everything has a global impact. And in addition, it's a multiplicity of crises. It is the economy, it is culture, it's education, it's environment, it's nature, it's climate change, it's global warming, etc. It's everything together. There has never been before in history a convergence, a simultaneous convergence of so many crises generating one colossal crisis. That has never happened before in history. This colossal convergence, you know, of all these different crises. And that is new, and that is why what may happen in the near future 
may be very colossal, but quite unpredictable. What is it that you tell your students about the future at the university there in, in Chile? What do you tell up-and-coming young guys like maybe Seth and I, we're, we're in our mid-20s, or even younger guys coming up? How do you look at the future and think about what you want to do for a career or uh, how to support yourself with so much uncertainty and so many converging trends? To do everything to be coherent with them, have to do, not simply what is best for them. That is the fundamental message, you know, that, that I give them. And then we discuss a lot. One of my courses is actually called contemporary world, where we discuss what is happening in the world right now and right this minute. And we analyze it deeply and discuss it, you know, and say, well, what is your position in this situation? How responsible are you, you know, that this is happening in the world? I try to convince them, you know, that everybody is related to everybody else. And we're living in a world in which nobody is innocent. Everybody has something of responsibility in what is happening. And if you assume that and you become coherent with yourself and you change yourself there, you may have an impact on others, and that may grow suddenly in an exponential manner. But the point is that they must realize that the solution will come from them, not from the top. There will no messiah, you know, that will descend, you know, they well, yeah, I will, now your problems are solved. For me, they must really understand that we are living in a world that will be reconstructing from the bottom up and not from the top down. And there, each one of them has a personal responsibility. A hundred years from now, when humans look back at this time, what do you think they will they'll say about this time period? How will they sum up what we're living through right now? That we reached the culmination of human stupidity. Since I was a kid, one day, I know I was about seven years of age or something, and one morning I asked myself, what characteristic do we humans have that is absolutely uniquely human and that no other animal has? You know? So I asked my teacher, and she said, well, we have a soul and animals don't have a soul. Well, I thought that was a very awful answer and I didn't believe it because I loved animals. And I said, well, if God exists, he cannot be so unjust. Well, later on, I asked another professor and she said, I oh, know we are intelligent and animals have only instincts. Well, I had my horse and two dogs and a cat, you know, and I knew that they took some very important decisions which had to do with reflection. So I wasn't convinced either. Well, years passed and many years, and I had many other alternatives, but none of them satisfied me. And when I was in the university, I actually doing my postgraduate. My father was a German scientist. And one breakfast, I told him, Papa, I have been thinking about this practically all my life. What is absolutely unique about us? And he immediately told me, try stupidity. I was very surprised. What do you mean? Yes, stupidity. <laughs> and I began, you know, I mean, really reflecting and really we are the only stupid species that exists. There are no stupid elephants or stupid crocodiles. Why? Because, first of all, in order to be stupid, you have to be intelligent because stupidity is not a brain damage. All of us have said to ourselves, how many times, how could I be so stupid? You have said it, I have said it many times. So we have consciousness of our own stupidity. The stupid act is the act you commit against the evidences you have. If I tell you, look, don't go through this road because it's dark and there is a hole there and you may fall into the hole. No, 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 don't worry, I'm okay. No, don't worry. You go and you fall into the hole. That's stupid. And what is characterizing us today is that everybody knows exactly what we do not have to do, and we do it. And that is the definition of stupidity, to act against the evidences you have. And we have reached... Now, at this stage of our evolution, the culmination of our stupidity.
And this is a very important thing because in the in the bottom of everything, I mean, you will find, I mean, uh, yeah, that is the stupid attitude. Not to recognize something, to deny something, to hide something, etc., to falsify something. All those are forms of stupidity. And this collective stupidity, you know, is responsible of the type of world we have right now. A few decades ago, there was a debate between Carl Sagan, remember the, the, the great astrophysicist, and a, a very f- famous um, American biologist. I, I don't remember his name. Yeah, I don't either. The debate was, you know, whether there could be intelligent life somewhere else in the universe. And Carl Sagan said, yes, because there are many planets now very similar to our planet in other parts of the universe, so there could be intelligent life. And the biologist said, no, I think it is impossible because intelligence was a lethal mutation. And it's very difficult that such a lethal mutation can occur twice. And of course, why? Because our intelligence makes us stupid. And stupid ends up destroying ourselves and everything that surrounds us. So I think he really had a point, you know, that this is a lethal situation. And what we are living right now and all these denials we're seeing here and there, you know, are in essence, in the deep essence, you know, a manifestation of human stupidity. Do you think humans are going to live through this time? I hope so. I cannot guarantee it, but I hope so. I mean, we have messed it up a hell of a lot. There was a recent uh, study by a group of scientists from MIT. I don't know if you have seen it. And that group, you know, says that the international panel you know, of uh, climate change, even the most negative scenarios are extremely optimistic. And this MIT group thinks that it's already too late. We are over the wave and uh, there's no way back and we are going directly into extinction. I'm not convinced still, but I believe that if that's not true, we are pretty close. So do you think that we should all just go to the bank right now and get out large amounts of debt and, you know, run up our credit cards really high? Just, you know, as the end of the world kind of party? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That wraps up our conversation with the economist Manfred Max Neef about his book Economics Unmasked, also his views about the U.S. debt crisis and how the rest of the world looks in on the U.S. and its debt crisis and maybe some differences between how the rest of the world views it and how we in the U.S. and Canada view it. Seth and Manfred were kidding around at the end that we should just all run on the bank, so don't go and run on your bank. Don't do that. That would be unwise, unless the economic situation has changed between the time I've said this and the moment you're hearing it so you may have to go put all my money back in the bank now justin yeah i actually after he said that i went and ran to the bank and uh, it turns out i didn't really have all that much money so i couldn't get anything out oh i just took other people's money from the bank i thought that's what he meant by running on the bank seth i don't i don't know about you but when he started talking about universities it reminded me of my university experience and i don't feel like my university experience prepared me to implement another model of society it prepared me to continue the model of society that we currently have that's true uh universities definitely 
definitely prepare you to be that cog in the wheel, to be able to stay within the framework that society has provided for you and to not really you know, think outside the box too much. They say sometimes that they encourage you to think outside the box, but the whole educational system is really just meant to, to keep you within that same box. How does one break out of that box, Justin? If, if university is not the way and if education through the, through the public system is not the way, what is the way to break out of the box? I think it requires altering your viewpoint on the world. I think it requires listening to other viewpoints. One of the biggest problems that I worry about in our podcast is that the only people who hear it are people who fundamentally agree with us. And that's not a good thing because we need people who agree with us to listen, but we also need people who disagree with us to listen because if we're not reaching out to those people who are closed off to alternative ways of thinking, then we're never going to be able to build the societal momentum we need to actually introduce change into the world. And I fear sometimes, even though all the benefits we receive from digital technology, such as iPods and podcasting and just the way that consumer electronics have decreased in costs that allow us to get decent equipment to record these podcasts and edit them, despite all those advantages, what if all we're doing is producing something that people can listen to to confirm their viewpoints? I think the important part of that is that we are producing something. And being able to produce media and being able to influence the world around you definitely is a step beyond what most people do in consuming media. Consuming media is a wonderful thing, and I consume a heck of a lot of media my own, Me myself. But I think that the most important thing is to be able to to produce media. When you, when you come up to somebody and you say, what media do you consume that's that's usually like a, a regular question do you watch tv do you watch do you listen to the radio you listen to npr blah, blah blah but when you come up to somebody and say hey what kind of media do you produce that's a question that takes it a step forward because you have the understanding that you're not only consuming media you are adding to the to the media scape to putting your voice out there to making something out of nothing going off of that theme of producing i think a lot of times we look at the united states and we look at the economy and we look at the change in manufacturing makeup of the United States infrastructure and a lot of people criticize it because they say we don't make anything anymore but I was thinking the other day and it had to do with listening to our conversation with Chris Martinson and he made a really good point in that the US does produce something we produce dollars and we take those dollars and produce them and send them all around the world and that's the biggest problem with the current system is that all those dollars are starting to change they used to be something that was extremely desirable and was backed up by a strong economy and now with all of the political bickering and all of the long-term debt issues in the United States, suddenly those dollars are no longer looking quite as desirable to other countries and they're doing whatever they can to disentangle. But as we heard from Manfred Neef, the rest of the world is terrified that the U.S. might collapse and take everyone else with it. We are concerned that that might happen as well. Who's going to replace the United States when eventually the dollar becomes a non-desirable item to have? What currency is there? that will take the place of the dollar. Is there anything that you can think of? I think what it means is that it's the end of the global economy as we know it. We've been able to foster this global economy, connect all of these manufactured goods and outputs from all of the countries all around the world because the currency has acted as that networking mechanism. It's acted as that thing that bridges and makes those connections. And that's not to say that trading isn't possible in the future. That'd be ridiculous. There's certainly other ways to trade and other ways other currencies to do it with. But the difference is that it will no longer be as easy because instead of having one single reserve currency, there's going to be quite a few reserve currencies that battle it out. And do you think there will eventually be a winner in that global 
markets will again emerge as something that humans will desire. We'll always have markets. It's just scale is what's going to change and availability is going to change. But going back to the issue of universities and the way that they pave models for it, I remember back in my university education, one of the big problems that hit my school was that one of the big banks in Charlotte, North Carolina was donating money to the business department to fund an Ayn Rand reading room. And they were making available free copies of the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged to all the business students and giving a big donation to the business school, the economics department to make it happen. And also requiring a class to be taught on the virtues and ethics that are contained within Ayn Rand's philosophies. And that raised a big problem in the university's philosophy department because they didn't think it was ethical to do that. And one of the interesting things that ended up coming out of that whole thing was that this bank wasn't just doing it at this university, they've been doing it over 35 universities across the United States. And all the other universities had just accepted the money and had done it without complaining. And this was the first university where the issue had been raised. Isn't that crazy to know that business is directly influencing the curriculum like that in some cases? I don't think it's crazy at all. We, we have business influencing our political systems. We have business influencing our educational systems. We have business influencing our, our entertainment, our news, everything. Business is a part of everything. And I think what you have to really come back to, though, is the principles that go into business. What makes a business a profitable thing? And when you have corporations that exist whose only agenda is to make profit, no matter what that means for the humans involved surrounding that profit, I think that goes back to a larger, more philosophical discussion that needs to be had concerning capitalism and concerning the ideas of wealth hoarding and and ideas that having lots of money is the only way to go. I think those are the ideas that need to be examined and those are the ideas that business really needs to understand because it, it that changes everything. If you had a you have positive role models set by business, you could have business supporting all those things and it wouldn't be a negative thing. I think for the longest time, the business of America has been business, but now perhaps that business is drying up and suddenly the financial markets are in turmoil and chaos and rapidly shooting down and up on a more than daily basis, on an hourly basis, we can readjust and say that perhaps the business can be providing a better human welfare. And that's quite a, a change in strategy. That's quite an adjustment, but that's the kind of thing that Manfred Max Neef is, is writing about in his book and is telling us about because there's so many different ways to re-engineer our economy so that it produces greater human good instead of just more dollars that flood into the global markets. I guess the, the end result is that we have to decide whether or not we want people to be able to survive and be happy and to live fruitful lives or we want them to suffer and be hungry and to live horrible suffering lives. Or work 10 hours a day for six days a week at meaningless jobs that have nothing to do but editing spreadsheets while sitting in cubes, you know? Wage, wage slavery. Yeah, wage slavery. I mean, it's Working extreme to call it slavery in a, lot, in a lot of ways because we do have so much material freedom that historically slaves have not. But the idea that there are options and there are not options, and it's the, the fact that options are very limited to do other things, to really explore passion 
passions and work in meaningful ways. And I think that if our systems can start producing meaningful work, as we heard from Chris Martinson, who said that there's so many jobs in the future that need to exist that don't, that's where things are headed because there's so much work to be done and people want jobs. People want to work on meaningful things. And I think that opportunity will be there in the future, but it's not going to be the system that currently exists that creates them. It's going to be us banding together and figuring out ways to make it happen. It's going to be interesting if the Democrats are going to run a primary against Barack Obama. I yeah. think that it's it would show that there's not a lot of faith in the president. It would be really neat to see if we had a candidate that came up and said, I'm only going to run four years. I'm going to sign something that says I'm only going to run four years. I'm going to put my body on the sword. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to take on all these big ideals that Barack Obama said he was going to do. And I'm going to do it for real because I don't even care about being reelected. So many of the issues that stifled the government's ability to deal with the debt crisis was the way the political system is organized. So much of it was campaigning for the 2012 elections as opposed to making decisions to do the right thing. No matter where you come from philosophically, if you think that taxes had to increase or that bigger cuts had to be made, neither side could do anything because they were both campaigning for the following year. So. I don't know how the U.S. will be able to continue in the future if people aren't able to make tough decisions in positions of power. Yeah, candidate Barack Obama has a lot of different things to say than President Barack Obama. Definitely. And, and when the per when the next candidate has those YouTube videos running where you, you have candidate Barack Obama talking, using those in, in your commercials and saying, look what he did, nothing. <laughs> it's going to be really hard for him to kind of refute himself talking to himself, you know? Can't really blame the president as the as the figurehead of of a failing nation, but yeah, I feel like you should have done a little bit more. Well, also, it's really tough to be the captain of a sinking ship, and at one point, I guess you have to jump ship. But Obama seems that he's going to stick it out to the very end, or at least try to if he can get reelected. So I don't know if that's admirable or crazy. But Kurt Vonnegut once said that the problem with the American political system is that you do have to be crazy to run for president, at least partially. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't disagree with him there. I think I'm so glad that I have zero responsibility compared to the president. I just do my lab research and do all these cool sustainability coordinating things at UBC, like uh, worm composting, and I get to talk to cool people and edit podcasts. That's nothing like calling S&P and trying to convince them not to downgrade the nation because it might collapse the world's economy. <laughs> and that was just uh, this afternoon. And that's what it was like. Wow. Yeah. Must be hard for him. That, I, I imagine it is. I think that's why you look at a president like the day they're elected and they're like, yeah, in one year, they're going to look about 20 years old. <laughs> when they leave office in four years, their hair goes from like brown to gray to white. Another thing that Manfred Maxneef talked about was he's working with a few other economists on putting together an international court of economic crimes against humanity. What did you think about that? That's pretty interesting. Who's he going to who's he going to bring up on charges? I guess the entire financial system system. Oh, so he's going to bring like JP Morgan and all the big financial markets and say, what, what up boys? Ben Bernanke from the Federal Reserve. All the central bankers on trial. That would be amazing. 
<laughs> if, if he can pull it off, I, I'm there to watch the show because that's going to be entertaining. What, what does he sentence them to do? He's like, I'm going to sentence you to 100 hours of community service hours. <laughs> <laughs> now get up there and pick some garbage up. I think all that they have to do, I think the world financial system would get corrected really quickly if they just took all the CEOs of the Fortune 500 and they made them have to live six months out of the year next to wherever the resources that fueled their businesses were extracted. So let's say if you were the CEO of a company that burned a bunch of coal to generate electricity, well, you have to live six months out of the year right next to that coal plant or right next to that coal mine. And you can't just own a house there. You can't just have your house there. We're going to put a bracelet on you like you're on probation and you're going to have to live in that house. How about where they're, they're- things are manufactured like in indonesia where they make the iphone steve jobs you are required if apple stock price goes up another twenty dollars a share to go and work in one of the factories that makes the iphone and you must make 200 iphones at least no that's probably like two hours for the iphone factory 200 oh yeah yeah well they're replacing half of the apple ipod making factory with machines now you hear that thousand machines are going to take over jobs from people you mean machines are not creating jobs? No. Machines are just taking the jobs away. Wow. I'm going to have to do something about that, machines. I hope that machines don't run for president because they have a terrible record at job creation. They do. I mean, one day, one of these days, we, we got to get a, a, a machine in there that actually makes jobs for people. Because all they've done so far since they've been invented is just, you know, take people's jobs away. What the hell? Yeah, I can see it now. machine says that it will make our lives easier by replacing mechanical tasks and making our lives more meaningful. But machine didn't know that it was going to destroy so many jobs, destroy our lifestyle, and use up our energy. I will not create any jobs. I will not feed the poor. I will try to destroy the world. Machine, wrong choice or manufactured vote? You decide. So we, we have an email from a listener, John H. This is John's email. I used to have an acceptable relationship with various podcasts. Many were very informative. Many were enjoyable. With the exception of KMO and the Sea Realm podcast, many had gotten to the point where there was little fresh content and I would blissfully fall asleep. But you guys changed that. I have yet to even get drowsy with the extra environmentalist. I'm not sure if I'm pleased or not with the loss of sleep. I certainly am pleased that you will not sacrifice Paul for frequency yawn excuse me i'm now napping at work from time to time but please keep up the excellent work and thank you so it's good to know that we're causing sleep deprivation around the world yeah i used to have that problem where i would fall asleep but then i started listening to extra environmentalists as well it's good when you're driving that's that's you know when you're driving you're falling asleep listening to the radio switch over to the podcast that's where switch, it's, that's where it's to the podcast definitely. and we will definitely keep you awake but yes thank you and we are very 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 sorry that you've had such a a negative time with with sleep deprivation that must be really really hard for you your two most recent podcasts i thought they were they were awesome they're very very well done i love the interviews on them and 
So um, that wraps up our episode for today. Anything else that we want to tell our amazing listeners other than that, the music they hear on the show is always in the show notes and they should go and support the awesome music blogs that throw out and filter out all this music for us. Why, yes, there is, Justin. People can find The Extra Environmentalist at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. They can find us on Facebook where they can like The Extra Environmentalist because liking is is pretty much akin to being amazing now these days. Uh, They can like The Extra Environmentalist on Facebook and they can follow us on Twitter as well. Justin, is there a way for people to leave a voicemail where they will be able to receive a free mixtape? Special mixtape that is music that is not featured in the podcast. Or maybe it will be. It depends on when you send in a voicemail. But if you call 919-701-XTRA, 919-701-9872, or you can even leave us a voicemail on Skype if you do a little detective work, because I'm not going to give out my Skype name necessarily. But look us up, send us a voicemail, let us know what you think about the show or talk in a funny voice and make a joke and we will play it on a future episode of the Extra Environmentalist Podcast. And because this is our 20th episode, you might see a a Donate Now button that will show up on our website. If you feel inclined and you've made it this far into the episode, feel free to drop us a few dollars and let us know that you really enjoy our show. There's a lot of work that goes into producing and editing these podcasts. I think we estimated that it's probably about six to eight hours per podcast from the time that we set up the interview, prep for the interview, record the interview, edit the interview, record all of this stuff, and then edit that and put it in and then publish it and write up our little description. Definitely takes quite a bit of time, as well as not even reading over the material that the author or speaker or documentary producer has put out. So chalk that up to probably about 10 hours per episode. Yeah, so if you, uh, you know, feel like this podcast is worth a little bit of your hard-earned dollar bills, your cheddar, your skrill, throw some of that our way and we will make the extra environmentalist better and better and better. You can count on that and we would like to count on you. On that note, have a wonderful day and may the force be with you. Next time on the Extra Environmentalist. When the trucks stop moving in three days, you're you're out of just about everything. People are so used to getting what they need when they when they need it or when they want it that they're really not stocked. Like a hundred years ago, being self-reliant and being prepared for long-term shortages was just a fact of life. You had to have supplies to carry you through the winter. Uh, you basically, someone in your town knew how to make, grow, or fabricate pretty much everything needed for supporting a reasonable existence. Nowadays, you know, stuff is grown and fabricated all over the world, and one little piece might come from China, another from Japan, another from Vietnam, and put a few waves out there, a few little ripples to disrupt the chains of supply, and suddenly things fall apart. How do we know the aliens aren't using us as currency? So are you saying that when we die, our souls become currency in the intergalactic commerce system? I'm saying that what if all of our politicians are reptiles and they're really just trading our souls on an intergalactic market? I think that would make a lot of sense. That makes so much sense. I don't know why that's not the main headline right now in every news agency. I can't believe that you put that thing where the the virgin women are (laughs) jumping onto the boat and and they were eating them. (laughs) I couldn't believe I put it either. The Extra Environmentalist does not approve the mastication of women throwing themselves onto our sailboat as we enter into the bays of their homes.
The Extra Environmentalist podcast is not misogynist in nature. Any comments that we make about eating people, whether they be male or female, or specifically female, should not be considered as a factual statement of the views or beliefs of either of the hosts of the Extra Environmentalist podcast. Any outtake that is included in the Extra Environmentalist is simply that, an outtake. And that goes for eating, shooting, stripping, beating, killing of any kind of woman. Or man. Here on The Extra Environmentalist, we think all humans are powerful and wonderful beings, and that should be respected and not eaten.